Today's scripture reading comes from 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. So if you'd like to open your Bibles to follow along, please do so. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he, ha- he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Mm. That's a passage for you. A few weeks ago, we were looking at the certainty of our hope that we have in our salvation, what we can look forward to. Paul uh, says that our inheritance is guaranteed. Now, that's a pretty certain promise. And our certain hope is tied to the certainty of the appearing of Christ, the imminent return of Christ, what we call the rapture, which we talked about last week. There's a great old song that we used to sing uh, back in the day that says, maybe morning, maybe noon, maybe evening, and maybe soon, coming again, coming again, Jesus is coming again. But we know that from what John said in verse 3 of chapter 3 there, he says, but we know that when... Not if, but when, when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall be, see him as he is. All who have this hope in him do what? We purify ourselves. Why? Because he is pure. That should be our continual state of heart, to be pure, keeping short accounts and keeping our heart right with the Lord because of his imminent return. Now, John switches gears a little bit and talks about those who don't live in a righteous manner. And that's what we were talking about or heard in our scripture reading this morning. Those who don't live that way, they don't seem to care. And then what we should be able to tell about them. Now, there's a huge problem in our world today that many people, including many church people, ignore or don't want to think about because it makes them uncomfortable. And that is a fact that Satan exists, and he is a deceiver, and he wants to convince people that all is well when all is not well. The whole idea of satanic deception is to blur the reality of salvation and one's sinful condition. If Satan can convince someone that the wrong religion is the right religion, then he succeeded in that deception. If Satan can convince someone that a wrong understanding of the right religion is acceptable, then he has also captured that soul in deception. 
And if Satan can convince someone that he or she is a Christian when in fact they are not, that deception, of course, can be an eternally fatal deception. And there is so much deception that is prevalent in churches today that people are buying into. They preach what some call an easy believism. And what they're basically saying is that a saving faith is the experience of a moment when someone says, yeah, I I believe in God, whatever that may be. But there's no actual repentance necessary. There's, there's no obedience encouraged. There's no righteousness, no turning from sin, uh, no spiritual fruit that's required. Just, I believe. In order to hold those kind of views, Scripture has to be either ignored or, as someone described it, devilishly manipulated. And one New Testament letter that is most often mangled by people who hold this view is this letter of First John. Because First John is just a series of tests that validates one's profession of faith. This should be the, a very encouraging letter to us as we study it and as we read through it. One author described it by saying, this letter, talking about 1 John, this letter more than any other is the antitoxin to the destructive pollution in the soil of evangeliz- uh, evangelicalism. It's the antitoxin to the destructive pollution in the soil of evangelicalism. The church has to be very discerning. Believers have to be very discerning. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, to examine ourselves carefully. Listen, examine yourself to see whether you are in the truth. And he's writing to believers in the church. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, he says, you fail the test. And John lays out a number of those tests, some of which we've already looked at as we've been going through 1 John. What do you believe about God? What do you believe about who Jesus Christ is? What do you believe about the truth of the Word of God? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Paul says, be honest and test yourselves, because there are eternal results. And that's what John is getting at throughout this epistle. And because of what happened in the church in Ephesus and these false teachers uh, that that were coming in and the surrounding churches uh, around Ephesus, John is concerned for us as well to understand how to identify a true Christian, (laughs) starting with ourselves. So Paul said, test yourself. Now, I'm not... preaching this because I doubt any of your salvation. Okay, please don't misunderstand. I'm preaching this because it's here in 1 John chapter 3. To accomplish this purpose, John lays out some doctrinal tests, what you believe, and some moral tests, how you behave. And that's what we're getting into a little bit in this passage and continue into next, next Sunday as well. And what we're looking at, for, at in 1 John 3, verses 4 through 10 that Evan read for us is summed up in several statements. The first one is verse 6, no one who lives or remains in him, remains in Christ, keeps on sinning. And in verse 9, he says, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. And he concludes in verse 10, this is how you know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. You're either one or the other. There's no in between. 
Anyone who does not do what is right or who does not practice righteousness is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. And the verb tense here that John uses is important when he's talking about sinning. He uses the present tense, which according to Vine's expository dictionary, indicates a continuous habitual practice of sin. The Christian does not, cannot habitually and persistently and continually sin. They will sin sometimes. They will actually sin willfully sometimes. We've all experienced that. We've, we've gone through that. We've done it ourselves. But they, they will not sin habitually, persistently, and consistently. If you have been saved, born again, regenerated, made new, the whole direction of your life is now toward God. The direction of your life is towards holiness. Your mind is set on the Spirit, Paul tells us in Romans 8. Your mind is are set on things above, Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3. So does a Christian sin sometimes? Yes. Do they have to? No. See, though we may sin sometimes, the ruling principle of our life is opposition to sin. So that we hate the sin that we see in our own life, and then we do something about it. Paul's very emphatic about this in Romans chapter 6, verse 6. It says, for we know that our old self was what? <laughs> was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin, the body that had to sin, might be done away with. And in verse 14, he says, sin shall no longer be your master. It shall no longer rule you. Folks, God is faithful, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, excuse me, 10, verse 13. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, He, he will provide every single time a way out so that you can endure it, so that you can stand up, up, up under it, so you don't have to fall, so you don't have to sin, so you can live in victory. And that's John's point in, his, in our passage here this morning. Verse 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Verse 9, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. This is that habitual ongoing practice of sin. John is saying that it's obvious who belongs to God and who doesn't. Plain as day, those who belong to God practice righteousness. Those who do not practice righteousness, they don't belong to God. Why is that? Because anyone who is truly reconciled to God, truly converted, truly saved, truly regenerated, truly born again, a real transformation has taken place in that person. If anyone is in Christ, you know that verse, Paul says that person is a new creation. The question comes down to, do we really believe that or not? Is that just kind of theoretical? We used to be slaves of sin, but now we are slaves of righteousness. That's what marks a true Christian. Godly righteousness, listen, godly righteousness is an impossibility for sinners. 
There is no one righteous, not even one, Paul says. He's talking about pre-Christ, pre-salvation. There is no one righteous. What was absolutely impossible as a sinner, namely righteousness, is now the true expression of the saint's inner person. That should be who we are. And if that's true, there should be an incompatibility with sin. Why? Well, that's what we're going to be finding out this morning because John gives us three reasons. Three reasons why we do not, should not, habitually or regularly sin. The habitual life of sin is incompatible with the law of God, it's incompatible with the work of Christ, and it's incompatible with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Isn't it interesting that the whole Trinity is involved? First of all, sin is incompatible with the law of God. Now, what does that mean? Look at verse 4. Everyone who sins, hamartia in Greek, breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness, anomia in Greek. Literally, the original is saying everyone doing sin is doing lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. It's not a transgression of the law. It's not just slipping up. That's not what he is saying here. Sin is harmatia, to miss the mark, to habitually violate God's law. For all have sinned, same word, harmatia, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He also, he's also saying that sin is anomia, lawlessness, the condition of being without God's law and therefore violating it. It's a failure to be righteous. And Paul says it's one and the same. It's one and the same. It's living as if there is no law. It's living as if there is no lawgiver. Folks, that's not us. That is not us. That doesn't describe us. We have God's law written on our hearts. Paul talks about that in Romans 2. And, and the writer of Hebrews, quoting from Jeremiah 31, verse 33, writes this, This is the covenant, this is the promise God is saying that I will make with them after that time. After what time? After Christ. After Christ's death and resurrection. This is the promise I'm going to make them. I will put my laws in their hearts. This is Old Testament stuff that the writer of Hebrews brings back. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Remember Jesus' words when Matthew, in Matthew chapter 7 when uh, he condemned the Pharisees and those who believed in their self-righteous system of theology, Jesus said to them in verse 23, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Why don't I know you? Because you practice lawlessness. You live in a condition of disregard for the law of God. And that's exactly what John is saying here in our passage. And when we, when we become Christian, we bowed our knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ to obey him, to follow his will, to fulfill his law. That's the commitment of salvation. We submitted to the lordship of Christ willingly and lovingly and eagerly and gladly. That's why we should understand what David said in Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. I meditated on it all day long, day and night. I just want to remind you of another verse over there in Romans chapter 6, starting with six, uh, verse 16. Listen, 
Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart. Why? Because His law is written on our heart now. You have come to believe from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free. Listen to this. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. That's a good thing. How clear is that? That should be a wonderful thing for us, a wonderful truth for us. So the habitual life of sin is incompatible with the law of God. John says everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. And this is actually the universal truth of living in rebellion against God that characterizes all the unconverted. And it's important to note the language John uses here in these verses. Twice in verse 4, he uses the word everyone. Verse 6, no one. Verse 9, no one. Verse 10, anyone. Verse 15, everyone. Talk about all-inclusive. There aren't any exceptions here. There isn't any dual standard of morality. Everybody, anybody, no exceptions who is practicing sin is living in an ongoing condition of lawlessness. And lawlessness is proof that you're outside of the kingdom. Jesus says, I never knew you. Away from me, you who practice lawlessness. This covers everybody who are not yet a part of Christ. But that's who we are. We are part of Christ. Lawless, then, is what we were. It is not what we are. We have been saved from lawlessness, and the characteristic that dominates us now is a desire to obey the law of God. There should be a desire to do that, not, not you've got to do this. We now love the law of God. We love His Word. We love obedience. We long to honor Christ. We desire the things that are right and the things that are good. Those are the purest and truest expressions of our new birth. Sure, we sin from time to time. We do. But we shouldn't regularly, in an unbroken pattern, go on sinning. And anybody who does, John says, is not a child of God. Because that's incompatible with the law of God. Secondly, the habitual life of sin is incompatible with the work of Christ. And we see that in the next few verses here, starting in verse 5. But you know that He appeared so that He might take away our sins. Remember in Luke 19.10, Jesus said, For the Son of Man came to do what? To seek and to save the lost. We're talking about the doctrine of salvation here. That's the work of Christ, salvation. Salvation is more than just forgiving us for our sins. Salvation is more than being legally justified by God because of Christ's death and resurrection. Christ came to seek and to save the lost. How did He do that? John says, by taking away our sins. John is saying, how in the world could a believer continue in a pattern of sin when Jesus appeared in order to take away sins? 
The Greek word that John uses is very specific. It means to remove by lifting, to take them away. You remember what John the Baptist said? Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Who takes away the sins of the world. John didn't say that Jesus came to to only take away the effects of sin. He didn't say that he only came to cover our sin. He said that Jesus came to take away our sins, plural. We believe that Jesus took our sins upon himself at the cross, do we not? Past, present, and future, we've talked about that. There's a concept, you know, out there in the Christian world that we sin in thought, word, and deed every day. I personally, strongly disagree with that. Why? I don't believe it's biblical. That concept describes a non-Christian. Those words are found in confessional prayers in the Catholic Church, in the Anglican Church, and in some Lutheran churches as well. This is the actual prayer that they have believers pray on a regular basis. Most merciful God, it starts out, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. That's the first thing I disagree with. We are no longer by nature sinful and unclean. That's the first, uh, we, we have been given a new nature. Paul tells us very clearly in Colossians that that old sinful nature is dead. It's buried. We are no longer unclean because we've been purified by the blood of Christ. Do you remember what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse, verse 1 and 2? As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, past tense, in which we, you, you used to live past tense, when you followed, past tense, the ways of this world and the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, those who are without Christ and belong to the devil, according to John here, that's not us. The church prayer goes on to say, we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Are we being convicted by the Holy Spirit of that? Or do we just believe that accusation? That's, in my opinion, that self-accusation that the church is putting on believers. And who is the accuser of the brethren? That's making believers believe that there has been no change in their life. They're just regular old sinners every day. Then the prayer goes on to say, We justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. No, we don't. We don't. In His justice, because He is always just, He has lifted our punishment and already placed it on Christ. Paul said in in verse 3 there in Ephesians 2, like the rest, we were (laughs) by nature deserving of wrath. We were, you were, past tense, but not now. Why? Because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy by His grace has saved us. From his wrath. Folks, we no longer deserve his present and eternal punishment. This is a good prayer for sinners, not for believers. 
That's what we were. That's no longer who we are. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 2.24, listen, he himself, Jesus Christ, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Why? So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, you'll recognize this very well. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, what? He gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us victory. Victory over what? Victory over sin. You know, but there are some who say, you know, I, I just can't help sinning. I'm sorry, that's bad theology. Christ has destroyed the power of sin over us. He has taken it away. If we can't help sinning, where's the victory? If we can't help sinning, we've got a problem. He has, by his death and resurrection, taken away our sins. That's what John is telling us here. And has given us power to live a righteous life, a life without habitual sin. How much power? Oh my goodness. His incomparably great power for us who believe, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 verse 19. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. It's that power. It's that victory. If we have to sin every day, folks, God's power and Christ's death and resurrection was not enough. God said, be holy as I am holy. That command is not theoretical. Just try. Be in a continual state of holiness. How is that even possible if we continue to sin daily? It's not. Listen to what Paul writes to Titus in chapter 2. We wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory. John, we talked about this last week. We wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. He has changed us. He's purified us. We're talking sanctification here, making us holy, make, uh, separating us from sin. He didn't save us just to let us go on sinning at the same rate until we're finally given a glorified body when, when Christ returns. He saved us so that we could now be delivered from lawless deeds, from wickedness, from unrighteousness, which previously made up the whole of our life. And he purified us to become people who are now eager to do what is good, eager to do righteousness. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? To make her holy sanctify her, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blem blemish, but holy and blameless. When the gospel word came and we believed, 
Folks, we were washed. We were made clean. Listen again to 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross in order that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That we might die to sin and live on a continual basis in righteousness. How is that possible? Well, John adds at the end of verse 5, and in him is no sin. Yeah, duh. We know that. That's old news. What does that have to do with it? Folks, that short little statement should have a huge impact on our lives. John said in verse 29 of chapter 2, if you know that he is righteous... You know that everyone who does what is right or who does righteousness has been born of Him. You can't be connected with the person and work of Christ and not have your relationship to sin dramatically changed. Your attitude toward the law of God is dramatically changed because you've been made new on the inside. Your conduct is dramatically changed because of the new life on the inside so that sin is lifted. Paul says that it is no longer I who live. Well, who is it then? (laughs) It's Christ. It's Christ who lives in me. If If we have perpetual sin every day in our life, that's not Christ living in us. The concept of Christ living in us is not an idea that He's just present somewhere in a guest room upstairs in our home or in our life. He should become the man of the house. He should become the Lord of our life who rules and conducts our life through us. And John continues to be very direct in verse 6 of our passage here. No one who lives in Him keeps on sinning. We shouldn't be sinning in thought, word, and deed every day. That's not consistent with the life of Christ, nor is it consistent with the life with Christ, nor is it consistent with the life in Christ. He says, no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Let me take you to Romans chapter 6 again, very quickly, because this is a concept that we really need to understand from the bottom of our heart, not just a kind of a theoretical understanding in our head. In verse 4 of chapter 6, Paul writes, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. He's not talking about water baptism. Water baptism alludes to this. But that's not water baptism that Paul's talking about. That's literally being immersed into Christ so that we were dying in his death. We have literally been buried with him. Our old self, our old sinful nature was immersed with him into death. In order that, Paul goes on to say, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, look at this, we too may live a new life. If we are sinning every day, we are not walking in newness of life. We are not living that new life that Christ provided for us. The purpose of our union with Christ, this amazing spiritual reality, is in order that the old might die and we might live, that we might conduct our life in a new way, in Christ's way. He says in verse 6, For we know that our old self was crucified with Him. What we used to be, folks, what we used to be was crucified. Why? 
so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. We no longer are slaves to sin. We no longer have to sin. We no longer sin with the same habitual regularity. Why? Because anyone, he says, who has died has been set free. Past tense. Done deal. What a spiritually freeing concept that is. But thanks be to God, Paul continues in verse 17, that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. God's law is now written on our hearts, and that's what we're following. You have been set free, he said, from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. That he, he can't stop himself. He goes one step further and clarifies this in verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. We're back to holiness. Purity again. It leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. And that's why we, as John says, we purify ourselves just as he is pure. And so what the Apostle John is saying in our passage this morning is that we cannot continue in the same unbroken pattern of sin and at the same time abide or live in Him. Because no one who abides in Him continues in habitual sin. Dear, dear children, John says in verse 7, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. Why? Because we are united with Christ and he is living in us and through us. John goes a step further and says something out loud that nobody really wants to hear in, in verse 8. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil. Whoa, that's stark. That's strong. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Some of you will remember a comedian by the name of Flip Wilson back in the 1970s. I've mentioned him a couple times. He got it right with his one-liner he loved to use. The devil made me do it. That's absolutely true of those without Christ. Absolutely true. But the good news is that the reason Jesus came, the reason the Son of God appeared, John says, was to destroy the devil's work. Listen, the Lord Jesus came to sanctify us and to remove sin. He came to live in us, to bring his own righteous life and live it out through us. And he at the same time accomplished a devastating defeat of Satan. He's not talking about sometime in the sweet by and by when Jesus is going to return and set up his kingdom. The Son of God appeared the first time for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil in your life and in mine, here and now. And Satan was crushed so that we no longer are children of the devil, but we are children of God. We are children of God, and we should be manifesting God's character every day in thought, word, and deed. Not Satan's character. Isn't that exactly what Paul tells us in Colossians 3.17? And whatever you do, whether 
in word or deed, that's where those words are found in Scripture, and whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. To say that someone who goes on practicing sin is a Christian is impossible. It is incompatible with the law of God the Father. It's incompatible with the work of Christ the Son. And thirdly, it's incompatible with the third person of the Trinity, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Here's what verse 9 says. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Why? Because, John goes on to say, God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. A sinner is dramatically changed through this rebirth, this new birth. Have you ever looked into that? What does that mean that God's seed remains in them? The new birth involves the receiving of a seed, the seed of God. Do you know what Greek word is used here by John? The sperma theos. Whew. The seed of God, the sperm of God. That's pretty graphic. But that's what John says. So what does that mean? It means that there is a new life embedded in us. Just as in the human birth, there's a, uh, there's a seed planted that grows into life, into a new life. So in the spiritual realm, the very seed of God's divine life is planted in us. The sperma theos, the seed of God, so that we are really new in the very truest sense of the word. How does that happen? Well, John the Gospel of John chapter 3 says that we are born of the Spirit, and that new birth is the, is the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. You remember Jesus talking to Nicodemus. You remember that story, chapter 3 of John? And Jesus says to Nicodemus, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are what? Unless they are born again. Nicodemus is sitting there scratching his head. As, so, how, what do you, how does that work? What do you mean? I don't get it. Listen to Jesus' response in verse 5. Very truly I tell you, <clears throat> no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. And in verse 6, he goes on to tell him, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. And then in verse 8, he says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear a sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Born of the Spirit. Born of the Spirit, born of the Spirit. So the new birth is the work of the Holy Spirit. So when we read then in verse 9 of 1 John 3 about being born of God, we're talking about God the Holy Spirit. He is the agent by which the new birth takes place. And the whole Trinity, therefore, is involved. One commentator put it this way, the work of the Father in bringing us under His law, produces in us a different attitude toward the law because now His law is written on our hearts and we love it. The work of the Son in lifting sin away, joining us to His righteousness and destroying the sovereign dominance of Satan and sin in our lives. And now the work of the Holy Spirit to produce new life in us, all evidence of the fact that we cannot continue to be the same kind of sinning people. It's the Holy Spirit who operates that new birth. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, we looked at these verses in our spiritual growth class this morning. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth. 
He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And in 2 Peter 1.4, he tells us that because of that, we may now participate in the divine nature. Now, present tense. How is that possible? Because we've got the very seed of God, which is permanent. Look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.23. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. The point he's making is that if, if you've been born again, it's permanent. Because the seed is permanent. Once new life is planted in you, it can't perish. Folks, this is the security of the believer. It's a wonderful security of the believer. Not only do we have the seed of God that began a new life in us, not only does Christ now live in us and we in Him, but we now have the mind of Christ. It didn't used to be that way in the Old Testament because Christ wasn't there, uh, given as He was in the New Testament. In fact, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, Who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct Him? That's a question the Old Testament uh, prophets were asking. It's found in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. They were asking that question, How can we go- know God's mind? We can't. It's impossible. But, Paul goes on to say, In the same verse, we have, present tense, we have the mind of Christ. So here's my question. If we have the mind of Christ, why would we be sinning in thought every day? If our old sinful natures have been put to death and we've died at the cross, And it is not I who live any longer, but it's Christ who lives in me. Why would we be sinning indeed every day? And if our minds have been transformed and renewed and our hearts cleansed, why would we be sinning in word uh, every day? Because that's uh, what comes out of the mouth is what's found in the heart, right? Our heart has changed. John ends this section in verse 10. With this very plain and straightforward statement, this is how we know who the children of, our, of God are. And I trust that what we've been talking about is very encouraging to you today. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, black and white, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. For John, it's obvious. The one who has his seed in them can't go on in this unbroken pattern of sin because they've been born of God, verse 9 says. The one who practices this sin, verse 8 says, has to be of the devil. Because for us who belong to Christ and abide in Him, the power of Satan has been broken and sin has been lifted. Does that mean that we've reached uh, some state of perfection? (laughs) No. You and I both know that but we're moving in the right direction. We're moving in the direction of the life of Christ in us, seeking that perfection in Christ. 
Salvation is a transformation. It is a total transformation. It's a dramatic, life-changing transformation so that the pattern of sin is broken. We do sin from time to time, but we don't have to sin, and we don't sin habitually. And even when we do sin, this is kind of a neat, even when we do sin, we are grieved by it. We are grieved by it. And so even in our sin, we manifest a righteous response. How amazing is that? That grief over sin then drives us back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, right? Confess your sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, bringing us back to that state of holiness because he is holy. That's the evidence of true salvation when the response to our sin is hatred of it. We are to be, Paul says in Philippians 2, blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then, listen to this, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Folks, it should be that obvious to people around us. As obvious as a shining of the stars. We are to be living in victory. He's given us all the, 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 all the tools, if you will. He's given us the spiritual power to live in victory. We need to ask the Holy Spirit, what's going on in my life right now? Am I living in victory? Do, you need to, do I need to be listening a little bit more intently about the conviction that you might be bringing to me? Don't allow other people to accuse you. That's Satan's job. Be listening to the Holy Spirit. Father, this morning, we came blessing your name, giving thanksgiving, uh, praising you for all that you have done for us. And my goodness, all the things that we talk about are are minutiae compared to what you did at the cross with Jesus Christ. We think we've just been forgiven and, okay, we got salvation and that's good. But Father, you gave us the power to live in victory. You broke the power of Satan. You've broken the power of sin. It has no more strength. You've given us a way out. Just because we we have a negative thought or we think think a wrong thought, that's not sin. It's what we do with that. And you have given us a way out so that we don't have to dwell on those thoughts, so we don't have to dwell on those actions. And we can put them away from us in the name of Jesus Christ and we we can then go on living in victory. Father, help us day by day in, in, every, in, in word and deed to do it all in the name of Jesus and to glorify your name. Father, thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.